The fall sitting in the legislature has come to an end with the passing of the contentious proportional representation referendum bill. We'll talk about all the latest news and developments with Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Suns of Rob Shaw and Vaughn Palmer. Later in the show, Liberal leadership contender Todd Stone drops by to unveil his full platform exclusively on Inside Politics. For Kamloops Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics. Always a pleasure to be joined on the phone by Keith Baldry, Von Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, well, uh, the fall sitting came to its end, one uh, that uh, was uh, rife with speculation before it began about how this uh, NDP Green Party power-sharing situation would unfold. Uh, now it's now in the bank. Uh, I guess uh, off the top, uh, and we'll start with you, Keith. Uh, how did the session go in your mind? All right, looks like we've lost Keith. We're going to try and get Keith back. Vaughn, why don't we move on to you? How did the uh, how did the ledge session go? I think it went pretty well for the government. There were a few errors. A uh, couple of ministers uh, needed to be reined in a bit, a couple of broken promises. But look, in the greater scheme of things, the NDP-Green partnership is working very well. The government got through uh, its initial legislation. The Liberals were still finding their footing. And I think, you know, we asked the Premier yesterday in his uh, press conference, end-of-session press conference, what surprised him the most about being Premier of British Columbia. And John Horgan said... What surprised me the most was that I've enjoyed it so much. He's not saying it's an easy job, but he is finding it very upbeat. As you called it on social media, the Premier, uh, the happy warrior. Uh, Rob, what was your impression now that we've uh, put this ledge session in the bank? Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, it's the session that showed that um, John Horgan is really up to the task of being Premier. And we saw it during the election, this kind of transformation of him into this... uh, this leader um, who's unflappable, who is the NDP's strongest performer, who, you know, just manages to freewheel his speeches and handle any question that's come to him. And uh, when we were watching his estimate debate with uh, Rich Coleman, which is kind of one of the highlights of the session when the premier has to stand there for a few hours and debate their budget, it was almost a mismatch. I mean, he just um, he just kind of batted uh, Coleman around. It was it wasn't even really it wasn't even really uh, a competition there. So, in that sense, you know, people are wondering if John Horgan is up to the job. If the NDP are sticking um, the long term here, I think it was a session that showed uh, that they have a pretty firm grasp on uh, on being government. All right, do we have Keith back yet or no? Okay, we're still trying to get a hold of Keith there. Uh, so, uh, Rob, one of the interesting things you pointed out uh, during the session yesterday was uh, this question that uh, Mr. Coleman uh, seemed to, I don't know if it was a fishing expedition or, or what the deal was, but uh, he floated uh, whether there was any incentives offered to Mr. Plekis to get him into the speaker chair. Uh, nothing sort of a substance, I know, came from that particular line of questioning, but an interesting line of questioning nonetheless. Well, it was an extraordinary line of question. I mean, I... I don't, I don't know if there's ever been an example of a in the legislature of uh, an MLA so publicly um, questioning the integrity of the speaker. Because the, the essence of the question that uh, Rich Coleman actually asked was, um, did, did Daryl Plekis um, get some type of incentive by the NDP to defect from the Liberals and become speaker? Which is, I mean... <laughs> There's no one has ever said that out loud, and uh, the answer for the record uh, from John Horgan is no. But I think it speaks to just the the visceral um, 
personal animosity that still exists between some liberals and Daryl Plekis for his decision to mm. prop up the NDP by taking the speaker's job. And it's not even about taking the job. And when you talk to a lot of liberals, it's about how um, they feel that uh, Plekis lied to them over the course of several weeks negotiating with the NDP uh, after he uh, spoke up against Christy Clark and, and forced her to quit as well. So there's that that's not going away anytime soon, and it's an undercurrent of this session, the liberal um, disrespect of the Speaker and Daryl Plekis, and I think we're going to see that continue to, to bubble for quite a while. Okay. Uh, Vaughn, what did you make of it? I mean, uh, Coleman, I mean, I mean it was, we heard from Rob there, the, the, there wasn't anything of substance that came out of that line of questioning, but Coleman did have an interesting comment off the cuff to end it, saying that maybe it's a discussion uh, that will happen elsewhere. Look, yeah, but, you know, sometimes members of the legislature abuse the privilege they have, which is they can ask pretty much anything in the House when the place is in session you can ask questions in the House. You can ask uh, questions in committee. You can insinuate things that you wouldn't say outside because you'll get sued. So Coleman asked these questions, which implied that there had been some kind of a deal. He did not repeat them in the hallway outside where he could be sued. And we should note off the top that... The guy who conducted the negotiations for the NDP with Plekis is Mike Farnworth, now the House leader. He talked to Plekis. He made the agreement that if Plekis became Speaker, the New Democrats would support him, which was all that the deal was. And I asked Plekis, and he said, no, it didn't happen. And he said, by the way, if I'd done that, that's against the law. It's against the law for there to be an exchange of favors to accept high office. So this is pretty scurrilous stuff. The liberals have their suspicions. They have their dislikes about Plekis. But to use the premier's estimates to plant the thing on the public record is pretty close to abusing the privileges of the House. But, but you know, Shane, also yeah. what, the, what Rich Coleman has done here is he's salted the earth. Uh, for major projects in Daryl Plekis' riding, because the insinuation is that government's going to come up with a bunch of money to fund some sort of community center or something for Mr. Plekis for becoming speaker. And so if there was any <laughs> project that the government was considering funding in that riding, you better believe <laughs> they're in the water. <laughs> guessing that now, because it's going to look weird if it, if it suddenly gets announced. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, speaking of Mr. Plekis, I know that he was under the microscope uh, for some of the stuff that happened during this, this session of the legislature. Now that the session's over, uh, Vaughn, what's your assessment of, of, of Daryl Plekis? Did he grow into the job? Did he kind of continue to, to struggle, or what, what was your thought there? He's had a pretty rough time. You know, uh, it, it, he could have taken the job without uh, uh, doing it the way he did. He could have called a press conference, announced he was going to take the job, uh, rather than just blindsiding his colleagues and showing up in the chamber and getting it when he told them he wasn't going to do it. So he, he started off badly, um, and it's taken him a while. The place has been chaotic. He's had difficult making, maintaining order in the place, and I think that's shown. Uh, he did end on, I think, one positive note. There's this running controversy over the NDP's decision to put political staffers working for cabinet ministers into constituency offices, which are supposed to be nonpartisan. And Plekis came out this week and said he has concerns about it, too. He's asked the legislature clerks to look into it, see if there's much precedent for it. 
and see if there's any way to preserve the nonpartisanship of constituency offices from effectively being compromised by these political staffers there. So that's the first thing he's done that shows some independence from the government, and that's how speakers in the long run establish their credibility. They make it clear that they're working, they're there to serve the interests of all members, not just of the government that provided them with the majority that got them elected as speaker. Yeah, Rob, you mentioned this undercurrent of hostility, but what was your assessment of Daryl Pluckus doing the actual job? Uh, well, you know, we've talked before about the feeling amongst some MLAs at the legislature that the speaker needs to talk to them more, that he's only been there for a term and a bit. And some MLAs have been there for 20 years, and they know better than he does how to function uh, in in that atmosphere. And he doesn't ask them any questions. He just unilaterally dictates from his tower the rules that the legislature is going to function under. And people grumble about that. So I think step one for the speaker would be to start consulting a little bit more on, on what he's going to do. I don't think people disagree with the intention uh, in a lot of ways to clean up decorum in the House, but I was tweeting yesterday about this. There's this long-standing undercurrent coming from the Greens now uh, that, you know, MLA behavior in the legislature is children yelling, and it's it's like, um, it's it, you know, it's just, it's irresponsible to be heckling each other in the House. And I guess... I thought question period this session was more dysfunctional than ever. Mm. Not because the speaker uh, managed to keep the government didn't answer any questions. And I guess we're going to have to have a, a discussion about what we want question period to be like. Because if the speaker wants everyone to be quiet and no one's allowed to heckle, but the government ministers are allowed to spin and deflect and not answer a question and counterattack, then we're all just sitting there yeah. silence listening to ministers read off press releases and attack their opponents. And it's, I don't know if that works either. So he has started some reforms in the House that may or may not actually work, depending on whether the government decides to step up and also change question period by answering questions. I guess that'll be the, that'll be the thing I'm watching there. Yeah, that's, I mean... It, it, it's notion. Yeah. It kind of runs, I mean, it's the way question period is set up and run it has been the way it's been traditionally, although I will admit that there seems to be an appetite out there from some to have a little more decorum when they're doing it, but uh, it is, the, the process is the process at the moment, so... Um, uh, Lieutenant Governor Judith Gishon uh, is finishing off her term. Uh, she bid the House uh, goodbye yesterday, wished them all a Merry Christmas in doing so. Uh, I'm kind of curious on two fronts. Uh, one, uh, what will her place in history be considering uh, her presiding over this uh, new hybrid form of government that we have? And two, uh, Rob, you, you noted that uh, some BC Liberal MLAs weren't terribly upset to see her go as well. So why don't we start with you, Rob? <laughs> well, it, yeah, I mean, it, she is going to have an interesting... Uh, place in the history books when they're written, I think, uh, for her decision. As time passes, as the dust settles, I, I, you know, when you talk to constitutional experts now, m- there's quite a few of them who say she made the right decision, that faced with, you know, an election that had just occurred with a another party that had almost as many seats in the House with a confidence and supply agreement, that, that she did the right thing, that that was the right call to give the NDP a chance to govern. So, she may go down in history, you know, um, for doing that. It was an extraordinary moment to reject the sitting premier's advice to dismiss her effectively. Um, but uh, the liberals still take that very personally. You could see them as she was coming into the chamber. There was, I counted maybe half a dozen who didn't clap at all for her as she left. She gave a goodbye speech and everyone 
jumped to their feet and clapped, and there were a few stone-faced, and some MLAs who just, you know, did the slow clap, just the, mm-hmm. maybe they got off three total claps in mm-hmm. the span of a minute kind of thing. Um, and I, some of them seemed to take it very personally, but she was not. I think their concern, and maybe one day we'll learn more about this, is that they don't feel she consulted maybe widely enough with the right scholars, that there were some MLAs who managed to get access to her ear that is a little bit weird, but her term is done, um, you know, and she she presided over a fascinating moment and uh, we'll be picking away at it for some time to come. All right, uh, Vaughn? She will go into the history books as having done something that very, very few governors general or lieutenant governors have ever done in this country. There's been a lot of them in a lot of provinces and at the federal level, uh, but try to find a case where one of those vice-regal representatives rejected the advice of the first minister and instead, to call an election, rejected that advice and instead called, accepted the resignation of the first minister and made the first minister make the call. I mean, what Gishon did on the night of the 29th of June is there are very few precedents in the entire history of this country. So I think she made the right call giving the NDP a chance. But I st- it is unprecedented uh, to the most part, and it's an important decision. Uh, uh, it's controversial for that result, and I think it will be studied across the country by political scientists, by people who provide advice to lieutenant governors in other places, as, look what happened here in British Columbia. I think she'll be vindicated for having made the right choice. But it was controversial then, and it is history-making now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the legislation ended with the passing of the Proportional Representation Bill. It is now law, uh, and contentious one at that. We'll talk about that on the other side of this break right here on Inside Politics with Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Rob Shaw and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, we've had some phone issues and can't connect with Keith Baldry at the moment, so apologies to him. Uh, we'll get that ironed out and make sure you, we get him back on the show next week. Uh, guys, uh, this proportional representation bill now become law with the ending of the legislative session uh, is still a contentious one. Uh, I noted that in the uh, working committee announcement earlier this week, uh, Sonia Firstenau of the Greens admitted that there is some shortcomings with this online survey, which is drawing a bit of a firestorm for uh, accusations it's it's heavily biased. Yvonne, what did you make of, of her comment and her sort of squirming around and questions after that? Well, you know, the trouble with the Greens and the NDP on this is not that they support it. I mean, clearly they want proportional representation. Clearly it suits the interests of the Greens and, and now the NDP because they want to continue this partnership. Which is fine, fair game. They've said that. The, the problem is that when, you're, when you've got the two partners in power sharing being so enthusiastic for the change, they should be bending over backward to show that it's going to be a fair and an open and an independent referendum, Uh, that the survey is fair, open, and independent. And that's not the way it looks. Uh, The questions are stacked, I think, to uh, encourage a response from the public that says proportional representation is a good thing. They're being secretive about how it was put together. They're being secretive about the use of the data. 
And they've, they've put forward this notion that David Eby, who steered all this through the House and, and regularly attacked the liberals in the most partisan way, that now that the legislation is through, he can somehow act as a neutral arbiter on all this process. I mean, as I said, uh, the issue is not whether the Greens and the NDP support it. Clearly they do. The question is, are they stacking the deck to get the result they want, or are they going to make it a fair fight? Rob, you weren't on the show last week. I'm curious what your take is on this online survey and, and some of the twists and turns we saw this week, including what Vaughn talked about, uh, this issue of David Eby being partisan now but neutral later. Yeah, well, the survey is bizarre in some sections. I mean, some <laughs> of the questions, I just I, I tried to do it, and I was staring at the screen, you know, as in, do you value whether your MLAs are, you know, honor their election promises or respond to the will of their constituents or questions like that, which I don't... I don't understand at all how the, how those got through. Um, my I guess my concern on the survey and Vaughn has written about the about it this week is that the government has not made any commitment to release the survey data. They're yeah. going to release some type of summary, but how many people uh, participated in the exact breakdown of of the results on each question? Things that academics and researchers and the media can analyze to understand how people responded would be useful and uh, so far the government said no uh, we're, we're not doing that and they also haven't released as Vaughn's chronicled you know how the academics their, their panel has uh, provided input to help craft these questions the extent to which they actually did that so you already get this weird sense uh, from the ministry of attorney general that they're not particularly um, committed to making this process as transparent as you and I might might like so that's the first kind of red flag. Um, you know, the Liberals tried three times to amend this bill before it passed yesterday, and they were interesting amendments. Um, one of them was uh, to uh, add a line that would say the, the referendum results are only valid if enough people voted that were equal to or greater to um, than the average in the last three provincial elections. Uh, to address the, one of the other concerns people have is that, look, what if only 10% of the population shows out to this referendum next year. Is that good enough to yeah. change our whole electoral system? And the answer from government right now is, sure, 10% is fine. It doesn't really matter. I, I, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense either, to be honest. So you do get this lingering sense, as Vaughn has already said, that things are stacked, that normal pauses in a process like this, normal concerns people might have about turnout, fairness, weighting of the vote, releasing of public data. The government has no intention of doing any of that. And that really, I think we're going to see more and more discussion of that as, as we get closer to people actually caring about this referendum. It's so far in the distance, you know, a year from now, that um, you know, it's just kind of an, an abstract concept that is going to, I think, start to get people upset uh, later next year. Uh, Vaughn, uh, to you, I know that uh, you talked to the Premier about this issue of having all the data released, and he, he kind of seemed to dance around a little bit. Didn't you know? He said, uh, if I recall correctly, something along the lines of, well, I don't see why we wouldn't. Yeah, I, I don't either, but the initial request to the Attorney General's Ministry was no. I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't release the... They claim that the questionnaire was vetted by a group of four academics. Now, three of the four academics are critics of the existing system and lean toward proportional representation. But the question was, well, will you release the, the, rec the advice and recommendations from the academics so we can see what did they think of the questionnaire and to what degree did the government listen to their advice? Well, I won't release that either. So 
um, you know, go to the end of the process when all the data is in and everything is done from the public feedback. Uh, the staff inside government are going to write a final report. They're going to give that to the attorney general, Mr. Neutral Arbiter, and he's going to present it to cabinet. And then he's going to excuse himself from the discussion. But, I mean, the input is going to shape what the government does on this. And I think it's important that that entire process be open and transparent and independently scrutinized. And that's not happening at the moment. And uh, we got some flack last week on the show uh, on social media for some people that uh, were bashing our view of proportional representation. But, uh, you know, I, that's not the, the framing that we're doing here. It, no matter what the process is, whether it's HST, proportional representation, whatever the deal is, you want a fair process to get us there. You want to you want to be able to have that conversation in the best frame possible to have an educated informed discussion where the electorate can render a decision. And I think that's the concern right at the moment, not so much proportional representation versus first past the post. Anyway, uh, we're going to dive a lot more into that in future shows, I can absolutely guarantee you. We'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, get it caught up with the news, and on the other side, we'll continue our conversation with Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. And welcome back to Inside Politics, talking to Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. Guys, we're still waiting for a final date uh, where we're going to get a decision on the Site C Dam, but uh, the Premier addressing the issue a little bit this week, uh, saying uh, geotechnical issues remain, uh, questions around costs and market conditions as well. Uh, Vaughn, are we any further on this thing in determining where we might go and when we might get there? Oh, yeah. Look, they had the big session yesterday afternoon as the House rose around 3 o'clock and the Cabinet settled into the Cabinet room to hear from the six experts. Uh, that went on about three hours, the presentations uh, from... A rare thing, you know, Shane, it's a, I don't think it's ever happened before that you've had six outsiders take the Cabinet oath of confidentiality, mm. brief the Cabinet on uh, a major issue like this. Uh, you're right, uh, the Premier says it's not the end of the process. You still have financial... Uh, Credit rating issues, debt issues, what happens to hydro rates if they kill the project, what happens to them if they continue it, so, uh, geotechnical, suggested they might even try to get something from the Auditor General on all this, but I think we can assume a decision by about uh, no later, I'd say, than December the 15th. The, the Premier is setting up his end-of-the-session interviews with the media, <laughs> his end-of-the-year interviews with the media for December the 12th. And as you know, some of those, particularly for television, are taped. They're broadcast between Christmas and New Year's. I think he'd want to have people know what the decision is on Site C before he wraps up the year. So I'm guessing somewhere in there we're going to get the final decision. Uh, Premier's going away for a week, and then he's on his way to China in the new year. So that's kind of the time frame. Well, son of a gun, my uh, my year ender with the Premier's on the 13th. Well, there it's you a, go. So to talk to the... I mean, by then, you're going to want to know what the decision is on Site C <laughs> before you do a year-end interview. Yeah, right? yeah, I would think so. Uh, Rob? Yeah, I mean, there's so many moving parts in the last week or two on Site C where you have BC Hydro, you know, sending in letters to the BCUC saying... You've underestimated the benefits of Site C, of the BCUC admitting to certain errors in their report. Um, I mean, you have the experts, many of whom, and our colleague Justine Hunter from The Globe interviewed uh, the folks who went to Cabinet um, prior to them going. Uh, they clearly are of a mostly anti-Site C uh, persuasion, but they insisted they weren't going to 
um, make conclusions, not all of them anyways, uh, like that, to Cabinet to provide advice. I'm sure some of them still made conclusions. But you're left wondering, well, what? how is the Cabinet weighting all this information? How do they take uh, a massive BCUC report and then a bunch of experts who nitpick various technical details of the report that most of the Cabinet members, frankly, aren't going to understand? We barely understand them, and, and they have entire other ministries to keep... Uh, tabs on. So how are they weighting all this information? And it'll be a fascinating decision. It'll be a defining decision for the Horgan government. But I I think it still comes back to most people aren't going to care (laughs) about about Hydro's 20-year power load forecast or whatever technical term that this decision is going to hinge on. It's going to come down to rates, and it's going to come down to an explanation of that you're better off financially on your bill than you would have been if they had not made that decision. And so I think those are, I think in that sense, Carol James's presentation to the cabinet where she has outlined the various scenarios, how they would impact rates, what would have to happen to the debt, whether the debt is going to be rolled back onto the government books, how that impacts the credit rating, whether you can spread the debt out if you cancel the dam beyond 10 years into other generations and less than the i mean those are all the kind of i think most interesting parts of the decision because that's where it's going to come down to is how do they artfully fudge the numbers <laughs> on their decision to make it look like this was the best deal that they could get uh on your on your bill by the time you finally get one artfully fudge the numbers speaking of that uh it's all built on affordability according to the premier of the site Dan, we did have a fiscal update this week uh, which uh, indicated the province books are in the plus, but on a very razor-thin margin. How does that factor into all this, fun? Yeah, I mean, what's happening is that the New Democrats brought in the tax increases they promised they would bring in, and they committed all that revenue to uh, programs that they promised. So they've spent uh, a bunch of the money they're already bringing in. Uh, they still haven't kept all their promises. They've got some expensive ones to fund. And meanwhile, the fiscal situation is tightening up. This happens all the time in British Columbia. Provincial revenues are volatile. So the Libs, uh, the audited financial statements on their last year shows that the surplus was almost $3 billion, but it's shrinking. Uh, not the NDP's fault that they spent $700 million or had to on forest fires. Not their fault that Revenue Canada added up the numbers for income tax last year and came up $700 million short. So, you know, but the net effect of all this, Shane, is that it's getting a lot tighter financially and the NDP has to come up with money for a bunch of promises next year that may not be there. Housing, uh, $10 child care, getting rid of the rest of medical service plan premiums. So they're either going to have to rein in the promises, spread them out over time, or they may have to raise other taxes. The one that they won't be able to rein in or, or spread out over time will be the housing issue. With uh, that, the, that's just a, been a, just a raging fire across the province. And uh, the premier saying this week, it's by far and away the number one priority issue on his desk. So, so Rob, are they? Uh, does the fiscal situation impact their ability to deliver anything of substance on that file? Or well, luckily for the government on the housing file, a lot of what they need to spend is capital money. So that's separate from the operating surplus and deficit. So they can, you know, dump a bunch of money into building buildings. They have the feds at the table now with a, a big housing plan and lots of money. The government has said they might even count privately built units towards their goal of 114,000 
rental co-op units. So there are ways to make the housing plan fly without blowing the entire budget. It's it's on the operating side where it's it's much tighter. I mean, if you were to do $10 a day childcare based on the NDP's election promise, you'd be looking at more than $200 million uh, in a fiscal impact next year. Well, when you look at the books as they exist right now, um, you'd, you'd blow the budget at that point. Uh, so I'm, I'm only coming around now to something that Vaughn said quite astutely the day after the budget update in September, that we're looking for tax hikes. I mean, that's, that's really where we're headed in the February budget. And I asked John Horgan that question this week. I said, is there, because the economy is doing so well, is there any room to raise taxes, corporate, personal income, mm-hmm. more carbon tax? Like what? And he wouldn't uh, bite on that saying we don't talk about taxes before the budget. But you have to do something. You have to generate some money to fund even a fraction of your promises because it's not there for the government and the and the updates are showing that. So it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see where they choose to to penalize uh, certain groups to generate the money to do the daycare, to do the health care, the seniors care, the renters rebates if they get around to doing that, depending on whether the Greens keep blocking the the renters rebate promise. So it's, it's going to be a tight budget. It's going to exemplify what Carol James has been saying now for quite a long time, is that uh, people are going to be disappointed no matter what. And temper your expectations, play the long game, and, and don't set your hair on fire when not everything from the election platform gets fully funded in year one in the in the budget in February. Yeah, and uh, it would be interesting. I think part of that will be what they do with ICBC. Vaughn, last word to you. Yeah, ICBC still needs to be sorted out. Rob's got an interesting piece in the paper today saying they're finally coming around to the idea that they may have to put some kind of a cap on settlements for minor injuries because ICBC's finances are still badly squeezed. We saw that, you know, this week, and again, the the quarterly update, the the projection for this year's deficit at ICBC is still climbing uh, with six months to go in the year. Um, That We've we've spent a lot of time looking at hydro because of Site C, but the Liberals actually left behind two troubled crown corporations, and we haven't finished sorting out ICBC either. Yeah, absolutely, and there's going to be a lot more stories in that one. Uh, Rob Vaughn, always appreciated it. Thank you, guys. Okay. Okay, thanks. Rob Shaw, Von Palmer, again, our apologies to Keith Baldry. Had a bit of a phone situation and couldn't connect with him today. I uh, look forward to talking to him next week. Uh, we'll take a quick break here in Inside Politics. On the other side, Todd Stone unveils his campaign platform plank in full. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined on the line by Kamloops South MLA and BC Liberal leadership contender Todd Stone. Mr. Stone, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, doing really well. You, uh, you're going to drop your official platform uh, full on uh, in about 11 o'clock this morning, but we're getting a little early here, uh, which uh, thanks to you, you've uh, been gracious enough to allow us to play with this a little bit. But uh, what's new in the platform, Todd? We've seen a lot from your campaign so far. So as you, as you table the whole thing, uh, what's new this morning? Well, we're really proud that our campaign uh, is the campaign of ideas in this leadership race. Uh, I think we've put out more uh, new, fresh, bold ideas than all of the other campaigns combined. And and I think uh, a leadership campaign should be all about that. It should be about offering a a vision with very specific 
uh, ideas that uh, you know are all about moving the province, uh, moving the province forward. We've put out uh, about 12 different uh, policy sets, uh, everything from uh, education to childcare to uh, to uh, agriculture, rural economic development, transportation, and of course uh, today. Uh, as part of releasing our entire platform, uh, we are rolling out our our economic plan as well with uh, a number of, uh, of of ideas that we think uh, will go a long ways to uh, really driving stronger economic growth in British Columbia. And some of those are uh, freezing income tax rates, cutting PSD by one percent uh, as soon as sort of uh, monies allow it. Uh, talk to me about freezing income tax rates. For how long? How long are you pitching that for? Well, uh, first off, uh, we need to reverse the NDP's tax hikes. I mean, uh, uh, with the backdrop of a $2.7 billion surplus that the NDP inherited uh, when they took power four months ago, uh, the very first move that John Horgan makes is to increase taxes. Uh, He increased personal income taxes, corporate taxes, the carbon tax is no longer revenue neutral. So job number one would be to uh, uh, roll back those NDP tax hikes. Uh, Secondly, we want to freeze personal income tax rates. Uh, that would be in perpetuity. Um, we, uh, we we don't think uh, uh, that taking more money out of people's pockets is uh, is the way that you, you grow the economy. Uh, uh, and and then uh, we we want to move on with uh, with actually reducing the PST by one point. Uh, of course, we will do that uh, when provincial revenues are sufficient to accommodate it. And and we uh, you know we'll have to see where. Where the economy is uh, when we uh, when we we have a BC Liberal government again uh, after uh, hopefully not too many months or years of NDP uh, uh, really bad NDP economic policy, but uh, but we want to we want to reduce the tax burden uh, for British Columbians, and again that's that's all part of our, our plan on focusing on uh, affordability. And just to clarify, just for my own peace of mind here, that you mean that you'd restore the revenue neutral requirement in the carbon tax. Uh, yes, uh, you know, very, very important that uh, that the carbon tax uh, be revenue neutral. It, it, it's also important that, uh, that that the transparency, which which has existed up to this point uh, on on the carbon taxes, so that that be restored. Uh, so British Columbians know exactly how much is being collected. What we're uh, what we're not um, uh, supportive of is uh, what the NDP have done, and they've not only eliminated the revenue neutrality aspect of it, uh, but uh, we will have no idea where these, these carbon tax revenues are actually going, um, other than into the big black hole of government. So uh, we're, we're going to uh, restore revenue neutrality. We're also going to make sure that uh, that the, there is accommodation for energy-intensive trade-exposed industries, so mining, forestry, uh, oil and gas, energy, uh, recognizing uh, the uh, you know that they need to use you know large uh, large amounts of energy to. Uh, to create uh, the uh, uh, to create the value that they that they that they create, which is, which results in a lot of jobs. So, uh, so significant changes required on the carbon tax moving forward. Uh, well, like any other promises, everything comes with a price tag, and, and you're also pledging to uh, stick the course. We're to scrap the MSP as a, as you mentioned, cut PSD by one percent, freeze income tax rates. So you're reducing revenue to some degree, but you also have to pay for a bunch of promises. How are you going to balance that off? Well, first off, uh, we, we have fully costed our plan, uh, and you, you have to remember that uh, this is against the b- a backdrop of a, a $2.7 billion uh, surplus. Uh, we are, are costing our commitments at um, uh, about $886 million, uh, the largest, uh, the single largest uh, new uh, expenditure item in there is uh, a early childhood d- development investment uh, of about $300 million per year. Uh, that's going to create the spaces that are needed, not just in Kamloops, but right across British Columbia for uh, for our kids. Uh, 
Um, can't think of anything more important, frankly, than, than setting our kids up for success so early in early in life. Uh, but you you pay for all of this uh, by uh, by growing the economy, and and uh, that's why having uh, uh, remaining committed to balanced budgets, remaining committed to uh, to a, a focused sector by sector jobs plan uh, is important. That's why uh, keeping taxes uh, affordable and in check, um, whether whether personal. Uh, or corporate small business uh, is is really important. Uh, that's how we're going to continue to attract investment. And of course, uh, government needs to support projects. Uh, uh, you know, all of this goes hand in hand. And uh, you know, I think we, as BC Liberals, we uh, we we've demonstrated over the last uh, uh, number of years, we're good economic managers. We've got to get back to those those core uh, fiscal uh, good good solid fiscal management principles. Now, the other thing that's new in here, I note, is uh, modernizing the BC Liberal Party. Uh, you seem to be kind of hinting that it, maybe it hasn't thrown its arms uh, open wide enough for people, and you want to go ahead and do that. Well, I think the BC Liberal Party, uh, while, while I've, I'm a very proud uh, uh, supporter, I have been uh, actively building this party for almost 30 years now. Uh, you know, I was recruiting candidates back in 1991 that uh, helped uh, lead to Gordon Wilson's breakthrough. I was uh, I worked with, with Gordon Campbell in the mid, mid-1990s, uh, Helping build the party then, and and so uh, this party means a lot to me, and and I think it's important for British Columbia to have a strong, vibrant, free enterprise uh, uh, coalition. Uh, but uh, you know, like like all parties, uh, they can become stale. Uh, they can uh, they can become a bit stale, and and I think uh, you know if there ever was a time uh, to uh, throw the doors and the windows wide open to a political party and refresh and renew, rejuvenate, it's during a leadership race. So we're proposing uh, a whole bunch of ideas uh, in terms of modernizing. Uh, how we raise money, uh, how we um, how we 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 run elections, the technology that we use, uh, getting out there and doing uh, everything we can to attract uh, more young people, more women, more diversity into this party. Uh, frankly, uh, if we're if we're we're truly assessing uh, why we didn't get majority government uh, last election. Uh, it's because we didn't have enough support from young people. We didn't have enough support from women, and 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 the party needs to better reflect the diversity of British Columbia. So, uh, I'm proposing um, uh, a, a a pretty aggressive strategy at recruiting young young uh, candidates, women candidates, diverse candidates, and and, and run them in ridings where they can win with supports, nominate them early, maybe a year or two in advance, and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna find uh, the day after the next election. Not only are we gonna be uh, in government again. Uh, but we're going to to have a, a caucus of uh, of MLAs that that much better reflects uh, the diversity that is British Columbia today. Uh, I know you're no stranger to the world of technology. Uh, you've you've hung your hat in that industry for a long time. Um, I was intrigued by uh, you talked about sort of modernizing using technology for voting within the BC Liberal Party, but you're also pledging to work with Elections BC uh, to introduce online voting to the province. Now, on one hand, obviously we're in a very you know, lightning fast, moving forward, technological society. But on the other hand, I don't think you have to look too far to see some of the uh, potential problems with online voting, uh, some of the hacking we saw in the recent presidential election, etc. So uh, tell me a little bit how you want to accomplish that while keeping the safeguards in place and the integrity of the process. Well, the, the, the integrity of the process and, and, and maintaining public confidence in, in how we elect uh, our MLAs is absolutely uh, job number one. So uh, you know, on, on uh, with respect to online voting, I mean, it will it will we will take a, a, a long hard look at it. We will assess uh, how it is uh, has been successfully implemented in other jurisdictions. It is in use in, in lots of jurisdictions around the world. Uh, obviously, with my tech background, uh, you know, I've I've got a pretty good sense of uh, of, of what these kinds of systems uh, do and how they work and uh, how they can. 
uh, what, what, how, how they need to be implemented to, to maximize assurance that they can't be, uh, uh, they, they can't be compromised in any way. Uh, at the very minimum, uh, you know, let's let's uh, let's open up a broad discussion about how we can we can do elections better in British Columbia. Kamloops um, uh, municipal elections, for example, like a lot of municipalities, we, uh, you know, they have uh, electronic voting machines, uh, which uh, uh, you know results in 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 having the, the the election results known in a matter of minutes uh, on election night with with no errors whatsoever. Uh, you know, as a as as a as a and a, you know, minimum step. Uh, you know, could we not look at modernizing elections, BC? Uh, you know, so that we we have results, uh, you know, faster on, on election night. Uh, uh, I think we all, um, when we went through the recent Comox Courtney experience, and you know, the days, and weeks it took, and recount after recount, and and so forth. We, we I think there was a certain amount of amusement bemu- uh, as to why in uh, in the 21st century here in British Columbia, it 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 is you know we, we still rely on such an archaic method of uh, of actually voting and uh, uh, and uh, and counting those those votes so so I want to have a discussion about that uh, part of this is also uh, you know intended to address the challenge of um, uh, how do we get more young people uh, more uh, millennials uh, to actually take an interest and actually engage in the process and and vote uh, I think uh, I think these are important questions and and again uh, leadership race is a, exactly the right time to be asking those questions so you think online voting would do something to kind of bring uh, the younger demographic into the political process? Well, I think the political process uh, uh, needs to needs to uh, needs to facilitate as best as possible uh, voter engagement. And when we look at who votes and who doesn't uh, in elections, uh, millennials, uh, you know, the younger generations do not vote in big numbers. And uh, you know, I think we all have a responsibility to try and figure out how do we engage young people. Uh, earlier in their lives, uh, to take an interest in in the political process, to to uh, cast that that vote, that the, the most sacred uh, you know, aspect of uh, participating in a democracy. Uh, I think um, modernizing how we actually uh, execute on those uh, on, on our elections, um, how we actually go in and cast that ballot, uh, is is you know one component of of how it, it could be made to be more relevant to more British Commons and. And uh, I think the, the result would be uh, more more uh, young young people and, and British Columbians generally actually getting out and voting. All right. Uh, let's try and cram in a couple quick uh, issues here before we let you go. Uh, I know where you stand on this proportional representation uh, bill that uh, passed the House as the last act before uh, the end of the fall sitting. Uh, I'm curious now that uh, the ledge sitting is over and, and you have time to go out and really stomp around the province 100%. Uh, number one, are you seeing, Todd, on the ground an outrage among people? Is, is this issue catching people or is it not? Uh, people are beginning to dial into uh, what the NDP and the Greens are trying to do here. Um, I, <clears throat> I traveled 6,600 uh, kilometers uh, <clears throat> over a five-day period about a week ago in, in communities large and small in every corner of the province. And uh, everywhere we went, whether I was in Surrey, uh, or uh, or Fort St. John, uh, there is a growing sense of, of anger that is building, and it's not it's not just focused on uh, the, the fundamental question of of is proportional representation a better system of government, uh, a better way to elect MLAs. Uh, it it's actually more centered on uh, this increasing awareness amongst British Columbians that the process that the NDP and the Greens uh, are implementing for this referendum is is extremely flawed. Uh, you know, there, there, the, the, it became law yesterday uh, that uh, there, there will be no uh, minimum voter turnout threshold. In fact, the Attorney General actually confirmed that if, uh, if only 10% of eligible voters show up and vote, 
And as long as it's a 50% plus one result, uh, the, the referendum will pass. Well, that means that 5% of eligible voters could potentially change how we elect MLAs in this province. That's outrageous. Uh, the, the threshold for approval uh, previously has always been, uh, the previous two referendums was 60% plus one. Uh, plus um, a majority was required in, in 50% of the uh, of the ridings around the province. That's how we protect uh, rural uh, BC's voice, small communities, the interior of the north. Uh, that's all gone now. It's a simple 50% plus one province-wide. And, and perhaps most egregiously, uh, the question and what we actually will be voting on uh, will be determined in the secrecy of cabinet. It won't be determined uh, through a citizens' assembly, which was a very public um, transparent, open process uh, that was in, in implemented in the last two referendums. So, um, I think that uh, British Columbians, when when they start thinking uh, this through, uh, I think they're increasingly going to come to the conclusion that um, this this uh, government is trying to shove something down their throats. This is uh, the process is fundamentally flawed, uh, and when people feel like government is doing something that's unfair and unjust. Uh, the people tend to rise up and say no. Uh, we've seen that in uh, in previous referendums. Uh, so I think that's what we all have to uh, to really pay attention to uh, moving forward in this. We really engage on this this referendum process in the months ahead. This online access only survey, Todd, does it uh, in your mind uh, exclude the voices of um, the some of the less tech, tech savvy sectors in our society, seniors, uh, some First Nations communities that have no internet access, things like that. Well, this this engagement survey is is perhaps the the, the biggest uh, uh, example of what what is wrong with how the NDP and the Greens are, are doing this uh, <clears throat> moving forward with this referendum. I mean, it's a joke. Uh, the 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 online engagement is only available for a number of weeks. It's uh, it, 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 uh, the questions in it are so partisan and loaded. It's not even funny. As I, I said on on on. Uh, uh, you know, in a number of uh, media outlets last uh, earlier in the week, uh, if we had come out with uh, an engagement survey uh, that was like this one, uh, that was as partisan, as hyper-partisan as this one is, the NDP would have lit their hair on fire and, and cried foul. Uh, this is this is uh, this is intended, uh, pure and simple, to um, to generate some data for the government uh, to be able to, to, to use uh, to try and justify um, what they're, you know, the path that they're already on. Uh, it's just to put a check mark in a box uh, that says engagement. Uh, and, and it certainly isn't a process that's, uh, that's, that's conducive to, uh, to, uh, to making it easy for all British Columbians to participate, which is why the Citizens' Assembly uh, a process that, that we implemented in the previous two referendums, which, which met, you know, had representatives from every riding in the province. It, it crisscrossed the province, had very open public meetings. People could come and, and speak, uh, accepted written submissions as well. Um, uh, there was an online component to, to those engagements as well. Uh, it was very broad-based, and, and so people had confidence in the process. And so if, if you can assure that, then, then you have to respect the result at the end of the day, right? Um, there will be no confidence in this process because of how, uh, how rigged uh, it, it really is in favor of uh, trying to generate the result that the NDP and the Greens won, which is a yes vote uh, on the, uh, the PR question. All right. Uh, last but not least, uh, you're in Kelowna right now preparing for the uh, Liberal leadership debate. Uh, you, I think it's what, debate three or four? I can't remember. Three or four? Number four. Number four. Okay, there we go. So uh, you've had a number of these. Uh, what are you sort of doing to prepare, and what do you expect? Well, uh, I'm excited about the debate in uh, Kelowna tomorrow. Uh, this is, uh, in some some uh, senses, my backyard. Uh, there are a lot of issues, not just in Kelowna and the Okanagan Valley, but uh, you know, issues that, that also are very relevant in Kamloops and elsewhere in the interior that 
I hope to uh, to canvass in this in this debate. Uh, you know, our campaign is uh, is gaining momentum. We've done very very well uh, up to this point. Uh, you know, people are taking a very serious, you know, long hard look at uh, at, at what we're saying. Uh, Again, we've put out more ideas uh, in this campaign than all of the other leadership campaigns combined. I'm very proud of that. And that's what uh, British Columbians are looking for. They're looking for a, a leader who uh, uh, has the energy, the vision, and the experience to, uh, 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 to offer a new generation of leadership. And, and uh, I, think, uh, I think we're going to inspire more British Columbians than ever before to, to get involved in the, the political process and then to get behind uh, our, our party and, uh, and support us in this leadership race. So I'm very excited. Looking forward to it tomorrow. And... Uh, We'll uh, no doubt talk to you, uh, I'm sure, shortly thereafter, Shane. It's always a pleasure talking. Thank you, sir. Thanks for the time. And that's Todd Stone, Kamloops South MLA and BC Liberal leadership contender. He's in Kelowna getting ready for tomorrow's BC Liberal leadership debate. My thanks to my guests today on the show, uh, Rob Shaw, Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Todd Stone. We'll see you on Inside Politics right here on Radio NL next Friday. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.